So we're coming to the end of summer here in Toronto. It's mid-August. And for your listening pleasure, I'm pulling some of the favorite episodes from our now vast vault of cool people that I've spoken to over the years. And today I'm talking to Heisun Moon. Now, Heisun and I have a bunch of commonalities. She has written a book about coaching. It's called Coaching A to Z, um, or A to Z, I guess, if you're in the States. We also share a publisher, Page Two, based out in uh, Vancouver, a publisher who I love. And she also happens to be a fellow Torontonian. We, uh, she actually came to the book launch party of How to Work with Almost Anyone. Now, Heisun reads from On Dialogue by David Bohm. Yes, that's the very same David Bohm who is regarded as one of the best theoretical physicists of the 20th century and whose doctorate supervisor was Robert Oppenheimer. And that's a name you've heard because that new movie is out and very much in the news. Now, On Dialogue, the Bohm book, was very influential on another book called Dialogue by William Isaacs. And that book, the Isaacs book, was one of the first books that caught my imagination and took me towards the world of coaching and curiosity and powerful conversations. So enjoy my conversation with Heysen. I'm a bit of a geek about models. I mean, not the fashion ones so much, although I do love a well-cut suit, but the ones that help us expand our understanding of what the world is, the models that reveal patterns and invite new possibilities. So I have some favorites. I mean, the periodic table is such a brilliant structure, as are the various alternatives of the periodic table. So the periodic table of swearing is hilarious, although definitely not suitable for work. And possibly now I think about it, only really understandable if you're British or maybe Australian. I love the Roman architects Vitruvius's three attributes for building should have strength and utility and beauty, because of course, those three attributes go far beyond just architecture. I also love that Vitruvius was the mentor character in the 2014 The Lego Movie, a great movie, even if you're not into Lego. And I love the alphabet, A through Z, or A through Z, if you insist. It creates a structure that is enduring, and of course, endless possibilities come from the alphabet. So here's one I love. Edward Gorey's The Gashly Crumb Tinies. And if you know this, it's the alphabet telling the tale of the demise of young children. Q is for Quinton, who sank in a mire. R is for Rhoda, consumed by a fire. It's honestly, it's funnier than it sounds. The good news is that not all alphabet books have grisly endings. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Hey Sun Moon, PhD, is an academic, a communication scientist, a teacher, and a coach. She's also an author. Her new book is a wonderful addition to the world of coaching, and it's called Coaching A to Z, A to Z, The Extraordinary Use of Ordinary Words, which is just a great title. But you know, I often ask, start these podcasts by asking people what their story is. And it's always interesting to hear their first response because Hey Sons isn't any of the labels that I've just given her in this introduction. The first story that I would bring up about myself was I'm a caregiver for my father. 
And now after he passed, it's now that story or identity is changing, which is very fulfilling to see. That identity is changing, but it also has roots. Here's what she learned from her mother. The way that she cares, actually, I never felt that she overcared, but you know, just knowing that you're always in that container of safety and you're cared for and cared about. And I think that's my one of many memories of my first, uh, my childhood, actually, first memories come from that. If one early and deeply planted seed was around care, I suspect another one also was around language. When her family moved to Canada from Korea, Hae-sun was 16. She was dropped into another culture and didn't speak English at all. So obviously, I wanted to ask someone who'd just written a book on the power of specific words, how on earth do you learn to communicate when you have no vocabulary? Oh, it's so interesting because I learned to communicate without using words. And I think some habits actually include you just politely smile and nod. <laughs> right? Like, uh-huh. Right. And you know, here's a story actually, Michael. When I first walk into this music class, because music is a different set of language that I didn't have to speak English, but I knew how to speak music. Yeah. So I walked into this music room. I was in grade 11 and this teacher you know, said, set me aside and she said something in English. And it sounded like blah, 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 blah. And she said, <laughs> orchestra at the end. Right. And I'm like, I know that word. And I said, I smiled and nodded. He's like, uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and she's like, oh, okay, um, follow me. Yeah. And I'm like, follow me. Okay, I follow you. So I follow her to this room and it was like huge room. And she just, yeah. you know, ushered me to this big gong, you know, that big gong. Yeah, yeah, and I'm like, I love what that. is this? And <laughs> she just gave me this thing and, and said, you know, play it. So I played it and she said, good. Yeah. I don't know what is going on. Before I knew, what she actually asked me was, would you like to be part of an orchestra? Right. And I said, sure, to that. And what actually happened was, um, they actually had a, a big show coming up in two weeks. Uh, Miss right. Saigon two was. Two weeks. It's two weeks. <laughs> and the person who actually was uh, doing the gong was like, you know, he got sick or something. Right. So they had to find a replacement quick. I didn't right. know what was going on. Before <laughs> I knew, in two weeks, I was in front of like hundreds of audience with this right. big, like, you know, this is not like just any gong. It's a Miss Saigon, you know, gong. <laughs> <laughs> it's a Miss Saigon. Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Oh, I remember, you know, the struggles and also things that are found in those, um, I guess, translations. And those were very, those are like, yeah, surprise, but also joyful, too. You know, it's so it's so it's amazing, actually, because if you arrive in Canada, speaking Korean, but not speaking English, mm -hmm. um, you're, you're needing to learn how to communicate. And some of that is smiling and nodding, but some of it's, it's finding words. Mm -hmm. And now in, in many ways, words feel like the business that you're in. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm wondering how, when you realize the power of language. Mm. I think, um, you know, growing up in Korea, we have, you know, four really distinct seasons, almost like each season lasts for three months. Right. So it's it's very special. Like, and click, we're into winter. <laughs> click, we're into spring. <laughs> click, we're exactly into summer. Right. Yeah. And it's just beautiful. And especially wintertime, I remember walking with my mom one day, and I was really small. 
and it was really cold. So I was like shivering. I'm like, oh, mom, it's so cold. And she just said, you know, if you keep thinking it's cold, it's going to get colder. So you actually keep saying, you know, it's not that bad and it's actually going to be okay. Right. So I was really young and I'm, I'm thinking, that's interesting. Yeah. And these memories came back as I was like now studying communication because coming here at that age, you know, it's not like I learned this language by, ex you know, I wasn't exposed to it. So the way that I had to learn is by studying the word where what's the story of this word? What's the story right. of this word? And knowing the backstory of these words that I learned, it was fascinating. Right. So when I actually look at some words, I know your story. And <laughs> I think knowing the words and how to use them. And I think there are a lot of philosophers who actually uh, point to that too, that yeah. it's not that words contain meanings, but it's, it's in how we use them that actually creates meanings. And I right. think I've seen that happen in my relationships with my dad, with my mom, mm. with my siblings too. And especially when I am sitting down with my client and yeah. how one word can actually make a huge difference in how they actually see things. Right. Right. Because I, because one of the reasons we know each other is that we, we are both coaches and we write about coaching and we write mm -hmm. about the language of coaching. Mm -hmm. you know, my book is about some very specific questions that I think are powerful. Mm -hmm. Your book, um, coaching A to Z or A to Z, depending on where you're reading it, I guess, um, is about 26 particularly powerful words that you think have a, a resonance and, mm -hmm. uh, and a depth in coaching. Mm -hmm. um, how do you, uh, I, I know, ironically, I'm like struggling to find the words to ask you a question about the words. <laughs> um, but I, I want to ask, you know, what's your guess around how you use language differently or see language differently as a tool in the conversations that you have with people? The way that I use it differently depends on the context, but especially when I am with my client. Yeah. Um, I think using language starting, it starts with actually listening to mm. specific language. Right. So I am not, I mean, the words such as like, uh, some people actually ask me is coaching advocacy. Mm. And it's a big question. I don't know. But then I know the story of the word advocacy. Right. <laughs> right? I know the word. Uh, it means to add voice. Right. That's what it literally means. Right, right. But then the question becomes, whose voice do you add? Right. Are you just adding a voice to their story so that their story will actually gain a voice, their right. voice? Or are right. we adding our story? So when I sit with my clients, I think about... I. Instead of actually adding my words to it, I listen to the words that they seem to really care about. Mm. And I simply just use that language. And we call that uh, preserving the language of the client, especially that. when it seems to be pointing to what they want, what they mm. care about and what's important to them. And sure enough, they respond to that. Yeah. And I think that's such a powerful way of just being present with another person, listening in their logic, like the words as in logos. We actually <laughs> listen we are staying in that space of their logic nice. <laughs> and the space becomes dialogic. So I think that's how I actually use it. Uh, that's fabulous. Oh my goodness. There's so much good stuff there. I'm remembering some probably 15 years ago, speaking at a, a coaching conference in, in Sweden, I think, and actually having going to a class and having somebody talk about the power of staying in there, staying with the words that the, the client is using mm 
and the power of hearing and using the same words they're using rather yeah. than going, is my slight variation in mm-hmm. words. It's one of the acts of kind of powerful listening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But my goodness, I love how you said staying in their logic and connecting logos, the Greek word for word, and logic, which is like it's about the words. Um, <laughs> so you're, you're, you're kind of honoring the ecosystem that they create in their language mm-hmm. by staying within that ecosystem. Yes, yes. I feel like by by finishing with the saying, you know, staying with the dialogue, you've set us up beautifully <laughs> for me to ask you, tell me about the book you're going to read from. Oh, this book. You know, that book that you mentioned about uh, Dialogue by William Isaacs. Um, it Actually, I met that book uh, about 15 years ago when I was doing my master's. Yeah. And that book I was reading, I'm like, oh, my goodness, what is this? And I'm reading and this is like incredible. It's like this is completely new way of looking at mm-hmm. working with people, yeah. like actually having a dialogue. And, you know, he talks about the difference between dialogue, discussion and uh, diagnosis. And especially yeah. when he talked about this difference of, di- you know, dia- dialogues and discussions that actually became my basis for the thesis and everything that followed. And I followed the trail of actually his work and he was basing his work, uh, Mm. William Isaac, he was basing his work on David Bohm, who actually is a physicist. Exactly. She's like, (laughs) how does that, uh, people like this are so annoying. They're like, you know what? I'm a world famous theoretical (laughs) physicist who's also writing a world defining book on what it means to communicate and have conversations. It's like, (laughs) damn it. Save some of the save some of the trophies for the rest of us. Come on, man! <laughs> and it's a, his life story is brilliant because he is not just a physicist; he is like the physicist that you read about in textbooks. Mm. And you know, while he was working with you know Albert Einstein, you know, you know that name, right? I've heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and actually, Einstein called him "Oh, my spiritual son" or something really right. significant. And right. and it's. As that kind of physicist, and now he yeah. paid attention to the quantumness of human interactions. And I'm right. thinking, this guy is crazy. Right. And he actually has written manuscripts that this is actually published after he actually died of a heart attack at the you know, ta- you know, back of taxi somewhere in London or something like that. And this got published. And when I found it, I this is not something that I actually was I was looking for. Mm-hmm. I remember about 10 years ago, I was actually at a local bookstore. I love this bookstore, by the way. If you're in Toronto, please visit Kaverishim. I love that book, booksellers, uh, right? Yeah. And I'm just browsing through and I saw this book by David Bohm. And the title is On Dialogue. Mm. So I had to just you know go right yeah. into it. <laughs> and this book is really about communicating dialogue, Mm. the macro to micro. Mm. And this really impacted me since then. My my work, the way that I understand how actually our work works. (laughs) So that's why I chose this. I love that. And um, how did you come to choose the two pages? Because it's one thing to pick the book. It's another thing to then choose and narrow down the two pages you're going to read from. Oh, I, I reread this book, and it's so funny, Michael. There are some parts that I didn't even notice before, rereading it. It's like, yeah. what is this? <laughs> I didn't even know that I was in the book. And I just chose these two pages that I thought, um, there are about seven different candidates, but mm-hmm. then I chose these two because I think it's really fitting Yeah. on many different levels of uh, our conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be wonderful. Um, 
I think I, before we hit record, I was saying, look, this is the book I have known of because like you, I remember coming across William Isaac's book, um, Dialogue, and just going, oh my goodness, this is one of those significant tectonic shift books for me. I was like, it's, I'm thinking it's kind of my, it's, it's a, such a deepening of an understanding of what it means to hold a container for a powerful conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've heard of this book, but I've never read it myself. So this is going to be brand new for me. So um, Hey Sun Moon reading yes. uh, David Bohm's book on dialogue. Over to you. Thank you. It's from page 32, and the section is called A New Culture. A society is a link of relationships that are set by people in order to work and live together. Rules, laws, institutions, and various things. It is done by thinking and agreeing that we are going to have them, and then we do it. And behind that is a culture which is shared meaning. Even to say that we want to set up a government, people must agree to a common meaning of what kind of government they want, what's good government, what's right, and so on. Different cultures will produce different functions of government, and if some people don't agree, then we have political struggle, and when it goes further, it breaks down into civil war. I am saying society is based on shared meanings, which constitute the culture. If we don't share coherent meaning, we do not make much of a society. And at present, the society at large has a very incoherent set of meanings. In fact, this set of shared meanings is so incoherent that it is hard to say that they have any real meaning at all. There is a certain amount of significance, but it is very limited. The culture in general is incoherent, and we will thus bring with us into the group or microcosm or microculture a corresponding incoherence. And if all the meanings can come in together, however, we may be able to work toward coherence. As a result of this process, we may naturally and easily drop a lot of our meanings, but we don't have to begin by accepting or rejecting them. The important thing is that we will never come to truth unless the overall meaning is coherent. And all the meanings of the past and the present are together, and we first have to apprehend them and just let them be. And this will bring about a certain order. If we can work this through, we will then have a coherent meaning in the group, and hence the beginning of a new kind of culture, a culture of a kind which, as far as I can tell, has never really existed, if it ever did. It must have been a long time ago, like maybe in some groups in the primitive Stone Age conditions. And I'm saying that a genuine culture could arise in which opinions and assumptions are not defended incoherently. And that kind of culture is necessary for the society to work and ultimately for the society to survive. Such a group might be the germ or the microcosm of the larger culture, which would then spread in many ways, not only by creating new groups, but also by people communicating the notion of what it means. Also, one can see that it is possible that the spirit of the dialogue can work even in smaller groups or one-on-one or within the individual. If the individual can hold all the meanings together in his own mind, he has the attitude of the dialogue. He could carry that out and perhaps communicate it, both verbally and non-verbally, to other people. Well, in principle, this could spread 
Many people are interested in dialogue now. We find it growing. The time seems to be ripe for this notion, and it could perhaps spread in many different areas. I think that something like this is necessary for society to function properly and for society to survive. Otherwise, it will all fall apart. This shared meaning is really the cement that holds society together. And you could say that the present society has some very poor quality cement. If you make a building with a very low quality cement, it cracks and falls apart. We really need the right cement, the right glue. And that is shared meaning. Thank you, Heisan. What's the, what's the call to action you hear in that passage? Oh, this entire coaching conversation thing is held together by a shared meaning. Mm. And I think whether it's coaching conversation or not, if you think about your own conversation with the people, we're always seeking for that shared meaning or building that shared meaning in communication science, we call it calibration. Mm. So as you're listening uh, and as people are listening into this, uh, you hear Michael say, hmm, Mm-hmm. <laughs> to let me know that he's listening. Right. <laughs> and in face-to-face conversations, we do not. Actually, research shows that when we are meeting with somebody actually face-to-face, more than 80% of the times, that agreement actually happens visibly, not audibly, which is incredible because right now we do a lot of audible cues because we know that people are listening and not watching right. us. Right. So you do right, right, to let <laughs> me know that you're listening so that we can actually, how does it function so I can continue talking? Mm. <laughs> but if I hear you say, huh, <laughs> then it will cue me to, it doesn't cause me, it will cue me to kind of yeah. like stop and say, so, and I might actually explain something again or I might actually ask you a question about it because you just, oh. huh. Yeah. Instead I, of like, I, uh-huh. I signaled not right, right, but <laughs> mm, you know, and who knows what right means? It's like right as an oh, that's a new insight for me, or right, mm-hmm. or, or or huh, as in I have no idea what you're talking about right, right now. Yeah, right. it could be either of those. Yeah. So then we really strive to actually create the shared meaning. So I am checking in with you about that. What you mm. just did? What does that mean? Why? Why are you doing that? So we exchange that effort back and forth in conversations. And this becomes really interesting when you're sitting down with your client too. But when you're sitting with your family, there are a lot of gaps that we actually fill in because we think that we know. Right. So we believe what I heard you say is this, instead of actually really paying attention to what you actually said, the gap between what I heard and what you said, it's sometimes larger in relationships that are that we are so familiar with. Exactly. Right? Because we get so assumptive and presumptive around we think what's no we know what's going on mm-hmm. you know um david bohm wrote that book what 25 or 30 years ago and it doesn't feel like the cement has got any stronger <laughs> since he wrote that it feels like the cement has got weaker can this calibration only happen kind of conversation by conversation like person by person or is it somehow scalable? Because mm-hmm. at the moment you've got everywhere around the world, it's not just America, although America seems to be the, the loudest version of this. Mm-hmm. You've, you've got two sides that don't understand, have, that have very little shared meaning. Mm-hmm. How 
can we create shared meaning at a more societal level or do we just have to do it person by person, conversation by conversation? And that's a big question, I think. Um, so one example of a microcosm is when you actually look at your, look at your relationships, most immediate relationships, and there are some shared meetings or shared practices. Yes. And when I think about um, workplaces, and they are some workplaces that are lacking shared meanings, they struggle. It falls apart because when they say respect, I thought it was this, but then it's you meant I that. See. So I think in lieu of the shared meaning, things actually fall apart. I see that all the time. Yeah. And I think also when I work with some workplaces, they they really focus on you know you know let's change our culture, and that's really difficult because. We cannot change culture if it's understood as shared meaning. Right. But what we can do is we can actually um, change those micro conversations because to me, culture is nothing more than accumulation of micro conversations. Right. And once you accumulate enough of those micro conversations, it becomes your family culture. It becomes your work culture. It becomes maybe larger culture when you have those micro conversations accumulated. And it's really interesting to think that way because what are some of those things on a macro level now? Mm -hmm. I'll give a, I'll give a quick example of that. So when we hear this big term these days about DEI, diversity, yes. uh, equity, inclusion. Uh, by the way, I love those acronyms. People try with like IDEA. They put yeah. accountability in it becomes idea. Or the, my favorite. <laughs> is when they put justice in it so that it spells out justice, di uh, justice, inclusion, diversity. I don't know what order, but it actually spells out Jedi. J-E-D-I, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I love yeah. it. Justice, equity, diversity, <laughs> yes, inclusion yes, yes, is exactly. uh, Jedi, yeah. I love that. And then the big question is, sure, we can throw words around like that, yeah. but what do we actually mean what? by diversity? Exactly. So I'll give the huge example right here and make this statement that might sound kind of weird. For me, um, diversity also has this backstory to it. I love this mm. word. So if you invite diversity to a party, they're going to always come with their partner. And their <laughs> partner's name is Norm. Right. <laughs> I guess it's a diversion. I love that Norm is an actual name as well and being a, a, a thing, an that's abstract right. ideal, so that's great. <laughs> so diversity always brings, you know, the partner name, Norm. Yes. And they show up together because for you to be a diversion, you need a Norm. Right. And if we talk about diversity too, in my mind, I feel like we're shifting norms around. Mm -hmm. But as long as we do that, the same thing perpetuates. So right. do we have to call it diversity? Can we call it something else? Right. Because it's about, can we language it differently? Yeah. So that in the world of social construction, I found this very fitting word that is multiplicity. And if you invite multiplicity to your party, they come in multiples. <laughs> right, exactly. They arrive right. in a gang. Yeah. Yes. And I think also the idea of there's multiple legitimacy. Right. Now, that is way more precise to define as a society than diversity. Right. And that, that's, um, in a way, my attempt to really sort of look at how do we define it? Can we make it a little bit more precise? So that's one example. Whole COVID, we talked about this distancing. And I still cringe when say, oh, you know, social distancing. It's like, that is so, it's not precise. What a loose way of using right, words. Because right. what we actually meant by that is physical distancing. Mm -hmm. Now, when you start calling it physical distancing, it changes the meaning altogether. It does. So those it are does. some examples of macro level yeah. languaging differently. Hey, son. 
And yes. I want to pick up on one of those one of those <laughs> um, words you're using, which is multiple legitimacy. Did I get that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I want to try and connect that to the challenge of creating shared meaning. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, culture is uh, one of the, the the shorthand ways of defining culture is the way we do things around here. Um, That's so true. And, well, I think what you're teaching me is that might not be sufficient because it's also the way we understand what we do things around here. Um, it's like we, how we, what's the shared meaning of what we do around here as to what matters and what doesn't matter. So it's not mm -hmm. just the actions, but it's how we interpret those actions and how we collectively understand those actions about what's okay and what's not okay. I have a presumption around what multiple legitimacy means. Um, and part of that presumption is, so if you have multiple legitimacies, I have my truth, you have your truth, they're both truths, they coexist. How do you create shared meaning when you have different truths? Oh, that's such a wonderful question. My goodness, Michael. So, <laughs> by the way, the term multiple legitimacy is something that I learned from uh, Kenneth Gergen, who's kind of like the father of social construction. And he really just, he's so passionate about this government's. Uh, not really getting to multiple legitimacy. Why mm. can't we honor that? And for me, last year, something happened on Facebook. I posted something on, I was just complaining because <laughs> I was going to like travel, COVID's still happening and there's yeah. anti-vaccine, this and that. And I was like so frustrated. So I posted something, which I really shouldn't do, but I posted <laughs> on Facebook with a mild irritation about people who are not getting vaccinated. Yeah, I didn't think anything of it. Actually, I didn't know that there are a few of my very close friends who didn't get vaccinated for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And they then responded to my post. Yes. Now that moment happened for me. I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Do I delete the post? And what do I do? And initially I thought, wow, I mean, why did I even start this? Yeah. But at the same time, I actually wanted to know what mm -hmm. the reasoning might be. Yeah. So I reached out to my friends and I say, hey, you know what? I love you. I, I think I know you. I want to I know about why you think that. Yes. I don't agree with you. Can we chat? Yeah. And I had, and I, I actually reached out to a few people with different topics, not just the vaccine, but also different political decisions that are being made. And I actually reached out to people who had completely different opinion than mine. Mm. And I actually prefaced the conversation by saying, I really want to learn about your stance. Yeah. And I really want to hear why that's important to you. And after about 20 minutes of conversation, we came to the same conclusion that, you know what? I get vaccinated because I am afraid. Yeah. She doesn't get vaccinated because she's afraid. Now we have right. a shared meeting of we're actually all afraid. Yes. <laughs> and then we could actually agree on that. And then actual action of it, it's it's something that we, we choose maybe differently but I think at the core of it, we were able to actually converse and, and dialogue. And because of that dialogue, my relationship with them is actually stronger. Mm. And that's one example that I can give you that, yeah. you know, we always strive to you know, come to this consensus and consensus is really no one's opinion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how do we really, uh, how are we just, how are we there to hear 
not rehearsing, not rehearsing yeah. <laughs> what we want to say, nice. but can we actually hear yeah. what the other person has to say? And I think that's uh, one way that I experimented with my own mm. uh, resistance, maybe. And how do you learn to not defend your position? Because I have so much, I have so much status and self-identity and baggage <laughs> that is entangled in my position. You know, one of my great mantras, I think, is stay curious a little bit longer, rush to action and advice giving a little bit more slowly. And I'm, I think that's a really helpful call to way of showing up in the world. Um, and that's fine when it works. And there are some times where I'm like, yeah, but you don't understand. I'm not curious. I need to absolutely kind of prove my righteousness and my rightness and my mm -hmm. truth. Um, you know, in some of these more contested conversations, how do you stay soft and open and curious rather than closed and hard and defensive? Oh, I don't know. I'm, are you kidding, Michael? I'm an arrogant academic. What do you expect? Of course, I have no idea. Teach me if you find out. Uh, okay. Well, that's good to know. Well, I do have, I do have a theory, which is, um, a, this is not the solution, but it might be some small part of a solution, which is, you know, our body leads our brain. So if you know what your, you, how you, what your physical stance of open curious, soft curiosity is, mm -hmm. um, if you want to be in that stance, put your body in that stance mm -hmm. and then your brain will go, okay, we're in open, soft curiosity mode. So how do I stay here? And likewise, if you know what your kind of like defensive mode looks like mm -hmm. and you're like, how do I stay out of that, that physically, you know, I just know, you know, kind of like softening my stomach and opening my hands up just makes me a better, better That's able to be curious. Great practice. Yeah. 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 And you know, for me, it's, um, it's so funny, Michael, my, I am so sarcastic. So <laughs> when I actually find myself in that defense mode, yeah. my sarcasm just comes right out and it's almost like, right. you know, let me hear you out. So I, I'm so curious why you, how you could be so stupid. I mean, <laughs> right. that sarcasm comes out. So for me, it's more managing that and genuinely, yeah. am I genuinely curious? And that's my first check. Yeah. So actually that's the hardest part for me to yeah. be there and simply like, am I willing to be actually surprised? Yeah. So nice. I think for yeah. me, I always look for that, uh, that surprise. You know, one, one uh, example I can give you is I had to be on a phone call with somebody, this professor that I just could not agree with. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, do some studying, right? So yeah, that yeah. arrogance comes out. And it was done over, um, it was translated. It was another language that he spoke and I didn't speak. So it was done over the phone. And there was a translator right beside me sitting down with me. And I just, and she knows how irritated I am. So then I was like, oh, the call. <laughs> and then I took out my notebook and I just said, you know what? I need to just settle myself and talk to myself about this. Mm. And then I wrote in my notebook on the top page, top of the page, I said, what does he say that he cares about? Right. I wrote that, I underlined it, and I told I talked, I looked at my translator and I said, This is this is what I'm going to focus on. Right. And that conversation went completely differently. And I think it's because I had that intention of, I am just going to listen to 
what you say that you care about, and I'm going to actually amplify that. And you know what, Michael, after that call, I actually got to really like him. (laughs) Interesting, eh? Yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) That's great. Um, You know, with the work you've done as an academic and in writing your book, what's been the most surprising shift for you in terms of how you show up in the world in conversation? Um, The book... A to Z. Thank you for saying Z, because that's how I say it too. And um, in the book, I actually introduced introduce this very simple idea of a quadrant. And this quadrant did just come out of nowhere. It's actually based on years of research and listening to thousands of hours of conversations that people have. And this came up as one day, actually, it was found in translation, actually, because I was teaching in China. And this student came up to me and asked, so what is it that we're supposed to do in coaching? I'm like, well, and I'm, I'm trying to find words and I couldn't find words, which, which I am very familiar with in my experience of being here. Yeah. So I can communicate in graphics, music, in different ways. Wow. So I just found myself drawing this on the whiteboard. I drew this horizontal line. It's like, so here's a timeline. They understand, yeah. you know, like simple words. And here's a timeline left to right is your past to future. And they're like, yeah, 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 we get it. You see how the shared meaning continues on in our short conversation. And then I said, also, your client will tell you the story of what they want and what they don't want. And that's the vertical line that's intersecting the horizontal line. Yes. So now we have a quadrant. People are telling you what they want in their future. We call it preferred future. Yeah. And we also hear stories about what they really loved from their past called resourceful past. Also, three times more likely that they actually tell us about this area we call trouble past, things that didn't really work out in the past. (laughs) And then also their dreaded future and those below the line, three times more likely. So then in coaching, we have this intentional sort of of listening focus. We listen to not only prefer future and resourceful past, but then how did you cope with, I mean, you asked that question in your book too, like how did you manage through all that crap? Yeah. yeah. And then people talk about their resourceful past and how we actually shift that conversation. And in the book, I introduced 26 very, very simple words. Yeah. I mean, letter J is like just, it's a yeah. just, just. <laughs> and then these are ordinary words that it just passes you right by. But if you are studying with a transcript, yeah. you see what that word does. It's not about, right. oh, use this word, but just really paying attention to what it does. Right. When you actually ask people, what do you want versus, so um, what, does that, what might that say about what you want? It's a completely different question by just inserting this one word, might. It's yes. the mighty might, we call it. Yeah, yeah. Right? Or when people say, oh, I don't know, versus I don't know yet. Yeah. Hello, it's a completely different thing, like the yeah. little word yet. So yeah. I find myself actually listening very differently to people when they speak about their life stories. I just pick out on one or two very simple words. When when people say, oh, I want, I want more clarity in my life, I don't pick up on words like clarity. I pick up on words like more. So I say, so you say more clarity. So, I mean, so what's already clear for you? Yeah, yeah. Right. So that becomes such an uplifting language game. Yeah. And I think that's a huge difference that I've actually noticed. Well, what I what I take from that, Heisan, is you know, you talking about shared meaning and the importance of precision um in that shared meaning. Mm-hmm. And so often 
concepts we talk about, like like clarity, mm-hmm. it's like what even is that? It's an abstract idea. Right. And with your emphasis on things like with modifiers to concepts like just this or, or might or yet, um, your those are the doorways to find nuance yes. in, the, in the bigger concepts. Mm-hmm. And it opens up so many possibilities and the way that i actually see coaching is a simple act of curating yeah and it's very different from narrating we don't just Mm. get our clients to narrate their story but we are actively curating it that's great right it's has been such a lovely conversation i knew it would be um i have a final question um what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said between you and me in this conversation that's a very good question I think conversation, huh? The word conversation actually literally meant in 14th century. Right. The place you live, your address, actually. I know that. <laughs> so I believe that changing conversation, micro conversation, actually can change where you live. And we live on that map of that quadrant that I talked about. That's the map that we live in. And can we find our way to what gives us that sense of purpose, that joy, that uplifting, so that we can really keep our conversational space dialogic and relational? So that's my wonderment, that, you know, people can do it starting right now. (laughs) Did you know advocacy meant to add voice? I didn't. I love that. I think it's fantastic. Because it means that I hadn't also realized that curiosity is a form of advocacy. Because curiosity is in part being willing to ask a question and then being quiet and listen to the answer, to call forth someone's voice. To listen in a way that they can hear that you're listening. And I know that sounds paradoxical, but those small mm mm-hmm and ah ahas are how you signal understanding and how you calibrate, and how you create shared meaning. feel, honestly, like we could all do with creating some shared meaning. So perhaps you and I could be advocates for that. Thank you for listening. It's always a pleasure to have you as part of this podcast. Um, I've got a couple of other interviews that you might like to check out if you enjoyed this one with Hayson. Seeking Deep Connection with Kevin Ashton is lovely. Um, and how to keep curiosity alive with Martin Reeves. Martin's a, a businessman, an academic, and this is a really kind of rigorous conversation around curiosity. Um, for more on Hayson's work and her book in particular, Coaching A to Z, so A T O Z, or Coaching A to Z, A T O Z dot com is the URL. I'm sure you will find it. Hey, thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of this community. Thank you for passing the uh, interview on if you really liked it, sending it to somebody perhaps in the coaching community saying, hey, you should listen to this. That would be amazing. Um, And if you're so moved to give uh, a ranking, that's really helpful. You know, us podcast hosts are always trying to get people to notice our podcast, to grow our audience. And one of the ways that we gain credibility is by kind people like you giving us some stars and writing some nice notes on the reviews. You're awesome and you're doing 